Let me pray for us, and then we'll go ahead and get started. Father, we are uh, grateful for your word this morning. We're grateful for um, just the full scope of your word, God, that we can study not just the Old Testament, but a book like Genesis and uh, just rejoice over everything that, that is there, everything that you have to teach us through it. We pray that as we consider these stories and, and the story that you're telling in this book, that you would just, God, just humble us and God, just cause us to be grateful and thankful for, for your grace and your mercy towards us in Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. All right, like I said, we have, um, we have a lot of ground to cover this morning, uh, but I think hopefully we can, we can do it. So uh, if you were with us last week, we covered just the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. So we went through Genesis 1 through 11, and we considered what those chapters had to teach us about ourselves, uh, our God, and the story of redemption that's being told in Scripture so far. But before we jump into chapters 12 through 50 this morning, uh, I want to, I've got a book to give away. So this is the, we've got several, but we're going to start this week with just this one. This is Message of the Old Testament by Mark Dever. This is a great companion for you to have as we are going through uh, the Old Testament this year. These are short, the chapters are short, but they're, they're rich, they're kind of covering each book of the Bible as you go through, and they're based originally on a sermon series uh, that he preached through, sort of overview sermons on each of the books of the Bible. So you will be helped by this, and I would highly recommend it. So who would like a copy of this? All right. You can have it. Oh, okay. There you go. I'll borrow it later. Okay. And we also have copies of it on the bookstall. It is... In fact, the only book we're going to be giving away that you can find on the bookstall. So, um, all right. So, if before we get started, I think uh, just want to think a little bit about the historical context for Genesis for a little bit. It's something we we didn't talk about last week, but I think we're going to see this morning is a really important topic for us as we consider these these last thirty nine chapters. So, uh, just briefly, I know I'm teaching here, but I want to get you guys involved and get you guys thinking about these questions. So. Um, who, who wrote the book of Genesis, if you know? Moses. That's right, Moses. So, so what's, I know we haven't gotten there yet, so we're, we're spoilers, a little spoilers here, but what, what significant historical event is taking place when this book is being written? The book of Genesis. What, what major event is going on in Moses' life? I'll give you a hint. It's the name of the next book. Exodus, that's right. So, so Moses is writing this book, and likely he's writing it in the context of the Exodus. So we don't know exactly when during that period that Moses is writing it, but we're fairly certain that this, this book of Genesis is taking place. Probably he's writing it during the, uh, the period of, of the wilderness journey. But why is that significant? Why is it important that we look at Genesis and understand it in the context of Exodus? Well, I think it's important for a couple reasons. Uh, you know, like I said, we're going to jump into Exodus next week. So it's important for us to have a sense of, of the connections between these two books. You know, we don't want to read them as isolated stories, each sort of telling their own series of events. The reality is these books are, are deeply connected. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. You know, we typically call those the Pentateuch. Uh, and those are those first five books that Moses wrote. And really, Genesis is kind of the prologue 
to that book. It's Moses' way of introducing us to everything else that he's going to tell us in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, so on. So we really need to understand that, that Genesis doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's, it's really part of this big story that, Gen- that Moses is telling us throughout these books. So that'll be important as we move on and see what's happening in Exodus. But more than that, this historical background is also important because it tells us something of, I think, what Moses himself is trying to teach the Israelites through this book. So if you'll, if you'll think ahead a little bit and consider the events of the Exodus, and we'll look at them in more detail next week, but we'll see that Genesis is likely massively important for helping Israel understand its identity as a people. If you think about what's going on in the Exodus and you read that these chapters this morning, chapters 12 through 50, I think you'll see that this is really sort of the prologue or backstory for Israel itself. It's their, it's their sort of tale of how they came to be, who they are, where they're from, and how they ended up in Egypt in the first place. So Moses is providing all of this background information to Israel for who they are and where they came from. But more than that, it's also God's backstory. So if you'll think ahead and you'll, if you will have some familiarity with where we're going, you know that God reveals himself to Moses and then God rescues the Israelites out of Egypt. And, and this is really Moses' way in Genesis of going, this is the God who, who rescued you. This is who he is. This is where, where he comes from and what he's about and why he's doing what he's doing. It's, it's his way of introducing the Israelites to Yahweh. So on top of that, there's, there's these connections between Exodus and, and between Genesis, but there's also some important thematic connections between these two books. And that's something that I think we're really going to see teased out today, because I think Moses is trying to establish some, some truths about who God is and, and who they are that are really important for, for Exodus, the, the events of Exodus and, and what the Israelites are experiencing in that Exodus. So just to think about that, does anybody remember what, what was that, that major theme or that cycle that we, we saw last week in chapters 1 through 11? Does anybody remember what that was? Yeah, yeah. So we saw this, this cycle of God making covenant with, with Adam, Adam's failure to uphold that covenant, and his descendants' failure to uphold that covenant, and then the same thing played out with Noah and his descendants. Why is that significant for Israel in the Exodus? Do we see something similar? Yeah, for sure. So I think Moses is, is wanting the Israelites to understand this isn't a new problem. This isn't a new phenomenon. God is, God is fully aware of their failure and their inability to be the people of God. So I think we want to keep all of these things in mind. That, that Again, what we're seeing in Genesis and the story that Moses is telling us, it doesn't exist in a vacuum on its own. It, it has deep connections to what we're going to keep seeing as we unfold this story. So we have this cycle of covenant making and humanity's rebellion. And when we left off last week, you know, we saw this, this playing out really in its, I would say, its high point or its low point in the story of Babel. You know, for all the horrible things that happened between Genesis 3 and 11, I would say the, the events recorded at Babel, they're kind of the lowest of the low point. After their attempt to build this tower, you know, it really represents humanity's obstinate refusal to obey and trust God's commands. And it's an attempt on our part to really make a name for ourselves. And, and I think you can't go into chapter 12 without realizing that things are here at the end of chapter 11. They're about as far from the picture that we saw in Genesis 1 and 2 as they could possibly be. 
Humanity has out and out refused to build the kingdom of God. And, and Babel is this obstinate rejection of that, that call that God gave to both Adam and then again to Noah. And it's a call instead to try to be like God or equal with God and try to make a name for themselves. So, of course, you know, God in his judgment disperses rather than judging humanity. He's, he's, he's upholding his promise to Noah and he disperses humanity rather than destroy them. And yet the result is a world that is fractured. That's not just one nation refusing to obey God, but, but a host of idolatrous nations. That's the state that we were left in. And really, it's a, it's a sad, bleak picture. And that's why I say things really can't get worse. This, I would say, in fact, things only go up from here in some sense. And that's an encouragement. So by the time we get to this chapter, we're, we're, we should be sort of very just disturbed and, and questioning how in the world is this going to work? But of course, we saw that same pattern of rebellion, but we also saw God's provision over and over and over again. God intervened, and by His grace and by His justice, God upheld His purposes. And so God's been doing that. And yet, I think as we turn to chapters 12 through 50, uh, I think we're going to see that God is, is no longer merely preserving this line of promise that we talked about. You know, and there's a sense in which God's role in the story here in chapter 12, it's going to take a drastic turn. It's going to take a, a huge shift. I think it's fair to say, as present as God is and as active as He is in chapters 1 through 11, there's kind of this sense in which God is just merely preserving humanity and waiting for humanity to build, do the work of building the kingdom. You see this pattern repeated in, in both Adam and Noah where God gives the command, He gives the provision, and He waits, and yet... We failed to do it. But I think what's significant this morning about these chapters is God's no longer sort of waiting for us to do the work. In fact, the most significant reality that I think we see in these chapters is that God himself has determined that he will build his kingdom despite our failure. And that's really the main idea or theme that I want us to see this morning through these chapters. That God, by his own gracious initiative, is establishing his own kingdom by raising up a people for himself from the Abrahamic line of promise. And that's, the, that's the main theme or the main picture that we see in these 39 chapters. God's gracious initiative in establishing his own kingdom by raising up a people for himself from the Abrahamic line of promise. Just as a brief note, rather than just going through all of the events found in these chapters, because there's a lot, there's a lot of really important stories here, really significant stories. And I would encourage you, after we go through this and after we kind of talk through some of the broad strokes, we go back and, and reflect on some of these stories because all of them in their own way really serve to feed into this bigger picture that we're going to talk about. You know, that said, if you do have questions about some particular stories or, or some particular instances, there'll be time for questions, there'll be time for comments. So feel free to ask if I don't cover something and you're just like, well, wait a minute, how does this fit in? You know, feel free to ask. But what we're going to do is really kind of step back and, and look at these chapters as a whole and try to sort of discern the big picture that Moses is, is showing us here through 12 through 50. And, and we're going to see this really traced out in, in three major movements or three major sections in the text. And those sections really correspond to the way that, that Moses kind of slows down and the stories that he's telling in these three sections. So first we're going to look at God's gracious intervention in the lives of Abraham and his son Isaac. Then we'll move to Isaac's son Jacob. 
and we'll consider God's intervention in his life. And then finally, we'll finish by looking at how these major themes and all these conflicts that we've been considering in Genesis really find their, their culmination and their resolution in the story of Jacob's sons. And we're going to see specifically a, a significance of this contrast and comparison for how all these themes are brought together in, in Joseph and uh, his brother Judah. And so in all three of these movements, I want you to keep that pattern in mind that we've been seeing over and over again of man's failure, God's gracious intervention. And yet, we're going to sort of add to that pattern this week because I think God is doing something new in these chapters, something we haven't quite seen yet. You know, not only is he actively working to build his kingdom, but I think one of the things that I want us to see in their lives of these men is God isn't just using them to further his purposes. He's not just preserving him. He's actually going to be transforming these people and changing them. So we're not just going to see sort of failure and then God's preservation. We're actually going to see God step in and change these people and make them different. And I think that's a significant key to the way that God is building his kingdom, but also the kind of kingdom that God is building. So God is not just graciously establishing his kingdom in these chapters. He's showing us what this kingdom is going to be like and the kind of people that he intends to make for this kingdom. And by the end of the story, you know, I want us to see how all of this is really going to come together in this picture of Joseph as this kind of shining example of God's promises and God's purposes. And once again, that's going to point us forward in hope as we, as we finish out Genesis, because it's, it's easy to come away from Genesis and be sort of, things look bad. But, but the reality is, I think that, could, that couldn't be further from the truth. I think by the time we come to the end of this, I hope you guys think, man, I never realized how encouraging this book is, how hopeful this book is. So with that said, let's turn our attention to Abraham and his son Isaac. So as we come to chapter 12, of course, we read of the story of the call of Abraham. And there's this remarkable turn of events after chapter 11, where we read that God calls this one man, Abraham, out of the midst of these dispersed nations, right? So we have this host of idolatrous nations we couldn't possibly imagine how this is going to turn out for good. And yet God calls this man Abraham out of the nations and he promises to bless him. And what are some of the things that we see uh, God promise Abraham in this chapter? Just call him out if, you, if you're aware of him. Great. Yeah, great nation. He'll make him a great nation. He'll, he'll give him a great name. What, what, does that, what does that seem to be paralleling? What did we see in... Uh, in the Tower of Babel, what was humanity trying to do for themselves? Make a great name for themselves. So God is not only rejecting their attempts to do that, but now God's saying, I'm going to make a great name for you, Abraham. What else do we see? What else is God promising? A land to dwell in. A land to dwell in. Yep. Yeah, that, what, that word is repeated over and over again. I will bless you. I will bless you. I will bless you. And in some sense, everything we're, we else we're seeing here, it's just it's blessing after blessing after blessing. And that's been a, a theme, right? We've seen when God instituted creation, he blessed the man and the woman. And then when he, when he, redeemed, when he redeemed Noah and his family and brought them safely through the waters, he blessed them and commanded them to be fruitful and multiply. And then in contrast, God's judgment has always fallen on those lines of curse. So this blessing here, it's signaling to us, okay, God's purposes and his promises, they're coming through Abraham, through this blessed line. And we see 
God's promise of divine loyalty, right? So God says, I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. I mean, that's would I have a friend like that. That's pretty great. If somebody curses you, then I'll curse them. If they bless you, then I'll bless them. We also see this promise, which is hugely important, of seed, of offspring, of people. Not just a few, like a lot. A lot, a lot, a lot of people. Numerous people. That's where we got the kids on, Father, right? Yeah, that's right. And so there's this, there's these... There's these picture, this picture that we have here of, of just tremendous blessing that God is promising to Abraham. And if we put all this together, I think this is a clear indication that God is intending to use Abraham for his purposes to build his kingdom. You, know, you put all these things together, you have land, you have people, you have blessing to the nations, you have this reign and rulership through this nation that he's going to make. I mean, God is promising to Abraham to make the kingdom through him, to build this kingdom through him. And, and notice there's no ifs or buts here. You know, we've seen some of those before. God said, okay, here's what you need to do. And if you do it, this is what's going to happen. But, but God doesn't really say that here. He doesn't say, okay, Abraham, here's what I'm going to do, but you've got to do this. Well, there is one thing that Abraham has to do, but it's relatively simple. What is that? Well, not, yes, but not quite, not yet. He says one thing he commands Abraham to do here. Go. Go. That's right. And Abraham goes. Yeah, so all he's got to do is go and take a look at the land that God is promising him. And, and Abraham says, okay. Now, as we, as we put all this together and we think about that, it's going to be important for us to see because like we saw in Adam and Noah, there was specific commands, specific responsibilities that they had to entail. And those specific commands and responsibilities, they were quite daunting, really. They were, okay, go fill the earth and... Cultivate it and exercise dominion over it. You know, that's relatively small compared to, okay, just go and look at it. Go and see it. And that's, that's what God is telling Abraham here. And I think that's important because as we go into Abraham's life, if, if the basis for these promises really rest on Abraham's obedience, Abraham's in trouble because Abraham's not, he's not any better than Adam and he's not any better than Noah. He suffers from the same problem that they suffer from, and that's sin. And so throughout Abraham's life, we see pictures of this. And, and I think it really, in Abraham's life, it's represented by this repeated theme of fear and doubt. You know, if you had to sort of say, what does Abraham struggle with the most? Well, it's fear and it's doubt more than anything else. And if you look at, um, there's really two pairs of stories that, that highlight this. The first pair is this, this, this idea of fear. It's in uh, what Jim Hamilton calls the sister fib. And it's this idea, you see this twice happening in Abraham's life, where because he's afraid that as he's going into this new place, that these rulers that live there are going to see him, or the people are going to see him, and they're going to, they're going to want to kill him and take his wife from him. And so he, he fears for this, and he says to his wife, all right, we're going to go to this place, but you've got to tell them you're my sister and not my wife, because if they think that you're my wife, they'll kill me and they'll take you. And it's a very irrational fear in someone. And, and he's so taken by it that he's not just wanting her to, to lie about it. He's even willing to give her over to these people. So you see this fear in Abraham's life. It's, it's, it's really present. And he's willing to, to, <laughs> to give his wife to these people. I mean, the, the picture that you're supposed to see here is, well, this can't be good for the promise. I mean, if Abraham is just going to give his wife to the, the Pharaoh, to the king of Egypt, and then to later on to Abimelech, like, what's going to happen? How, 
she's just going to be the property of the Pharaoh now, and he's not going to have a child. So not only is this evidence of Abraham's fear and, and failure and sin and lack of trust in God, it's really threatening the promise that God made to him in some sense. And yet, in both of these occasions, you know, what, is, what happens? God steps in. God prevents Abraham's failure from sort of taking root. In both cases, God appears to these rulers in a dream and basically says, I'm going to kill you if you take this woman because she's Abraham's wife. And both rulers sort of in the very similar way come to Abraham and go, what are you doing? You're, you're trying to get me killed. <laughs> what are you doing? And, and you know, there, there's a resolution. But in both cases, you see that Abraham really struggles with fear. He's afraid of what's going to happen. So much so that, he's, that he doesn't even think about the fact that, well, wait a minute, if God's promised give me a child, and how, how is giving, letting my wife be given over to this ruler? It, so it's a, it's a huge problem for Abraham. On top of that, I think in a similar vein, you see doubt as this, this repetitive theme in Abraham's life. And you see it in, in both him and in Sarah. You know, this doubt, it's specifically directed at God's promise to give him a child. We read in multiple places that Abraham and his wife could not have children. She was barren and they were very old. And so when God promises to Abraham, I'm going to give you a, a child through Sarah. Abraham's like, really? That doesn't seem possible. I don't, are you sure? You know, is that really going to happen? And, and same, the same for Sarah. She just doesn't believe it. In Genesis 16 and 18, we have these two stories that highlight this. In 16, Sarah gets this bright idea that Abraham should sleep with her servant, Hagar. Hagar. She says, well, it, it can't possibly come through me because I can't have children, so you should sleep with Hagar. And of course, we know the result of that. Ishmael's born, and God is very clear with Abraham, that's not what I promised. You're building the kingdom yourself, and that's not what I promised, and that's not what I intend to do here. And of course, in chapter 18, we had that story of Sarah outside the tent, as God sort of comes back and reaffirms to Abraham, nope, I'm going to give you a child through Sarah. And Sarah's listening in, and she laughs and thinks, who does, God, you know, kind of, who does God think he, can, what, he thinks he can give me a child? That's hilarious. I can't have children. And what does God do? He turns that back on her and says, okay, well, when I come back in one year, not only will you have a child, but you're going to name him Isaac, which means laughter. And it's going to be a perpetual reminder to you that you didn't believe that I was going to do what I said I was going to do. And so in both cases, we really see that, that Abraham and his wife, they just simply don't believe that God would overcome this barrenness in their old age and provide this promised child. But that's the point, right? That's precisely the point. God didn't choose Abraham and Sarah because of their youth and virility. He chose an old man and a barren woman as progenitors of his people precisely so that he could show that it is God and not man who will build the kingdom. Because it will be God and not man who provides everything necessary for this kingdom. And that's the running theme that you see in, in God's life in contrast to Abraham's failures. God is constantly doing what with Abraham? He's providing in spite of Abraham. We see this, of course, in that calling. God provides the calling. He provides the promises. There's no stipulations. But yet, I think it's highlighted really in, in three major stories, uh, two major stories specifically in Abraham's life. First, in this covenant ceremony that we read about in Genesis 15. So we read of this covenant ceremony in Genesis 15, and it's the covenant that God makes with Abraham in this context. It's this bond or this agreement that he's making with Abraham. It's kind of the, the legal ratification of the promises that he makes in chapter 12. 
And so you read this chapter and it's, it, there's lots of strange things going on in this chapter, but really what it boils down to is this ceremony is a, is a way of legally binding God to Abraham and Abraham to God to fulfill these promises and these, these, these oaths. And in this story, we see this sort of fascinating picture of the one-sided nature of God's, this blood oath that God is making with Abraham. God is telling Abraham, okay, I want to make a covenant with you. And as Abraham, God's reiterating all these promises and Abraham says to God, how can I know for certain that you are going to do these things? So he's still doubting, he's still questioning. And God quickly responds in verse 13, know for certain. And then as he, as he sort of teases out what it is that he's going to do, it becomes really clear that this ritual of, of animal sacrifice is really the basis for which God is showing Abraham, you can know for certain that I'm going to do these things. And the reason that's the case is because God, he literally knocks Abraham out in the middle of, the, of this ceremony, and then God takes over and he just performs the whole thing while Abraham's asleep. And God walks through the middle of this, this sacrifice and Abraham's asleep the whole time and Abraham wakes up. And it, it's in essence, it's like, I mean, imagine if you went to, to sign a contract with someone and you said, okay, tomorrow... Let's get together at nine o'clock and we'll sign the contract. Um, it's very important that we both be, sh- you know, we're both there. And you show up and the person says, okay, uh, let's do this. And they knock you out and they, you wake up and you're like, what's going on? They're like, oh, I just, I signed the contract. It's fine. I'm taking care of the whole thing. Don't worry about it. You'd be like, wait, what? What's happening? What do I agree to? But the reality is Abraham, this is God's way of saying to Abraham, I'm doing this, not you. So yeah, you're here. You're a part of this. I'm going to. I'm going to use you, and through you will this, these promises be fulfilled. But it's not really on you. It's on me. And, and the, God's initiative and His sole act uh, in the ceremony, it's communicating that God's taking responsibility for following through with this covenant. He's also taking responsibility for the failure. When you, this kind of covenant, it pictures a, um, a common practice in the ancient, ancient Near East. And, and the, the ceremony itself, it was a way of both parties for saying, you know, whatever happens to this animal, let that be on us if we don't fulfill our obligations. It's a curious picture because in some sense, it's like God saying, well, if the covenant fails, then I'm responsible. Well, how can, you should be asked this question, how can God take responsibility for the failure of this covenant? Because then God would basically have to die. And that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. So already there's questions that are being raised by this. But whatever the case, God's making clear to Abraham, I'm doing this you're not responsible ultimately for seeing this through. I am. And so God is providing, right? That's the theme there. And, and then we see this in, of course, Isaac's birth, as we already alluded to. Despite their doubt and unbelief, God makes good on his word and he provides them with a son. This is the heir of those promises. Isaac is the living and breathing evidence. God will see to his promises in his kingdom without Abraham's help. And really, there's that one last instance that, uh, that I think just so beautifully captures both of these themes brought together in Abraham's life. We see both in, in Genesis 22, this picture of, of that, that, that doubt and that fear that crippled Abraham throughout his life, and yet God's provision, they sort of meet together in this, in this story of the binding of Isaac. It seems at first on its own to be a strange story where God commands Abraham to take his only son Isaac and sacrifice him. But I think what's being highlighted in these stories is both of these realities. One, that God will provide. 
You know, that's the thing that the, the theme that we've seen over and over again. But two, that Abraham's been changed through God's provision. Abraham no longer doubts God. He no longer fails to believe what God has said. God's proven himself despite Abraham's lack of faith. God's provided the son that Abraham didn't believe that God could provide. And so at this point, through God's grace and mercy, Abraham's been changed. And Abraham says, I believe that God is able to provide, even if it means that he has to raise this child from the dead. I believe that God will provide what he said he will provide. And that's really the picture that's being displayed to us in this story, that Abraham now believes God will provide, right? It's why he, when, when, when God provides the lamb and they sacrifice it and, God, and Abraham says, we're going to name this place Yahweh Yira, God will provide. It's this picture of everything that's kind of been going on in Abraham's life brought to a head. And I think it's also fitting that, you know, it's the same place in which we, we think that it's Jesus who is provided as a sacrifice in our place. So this, this story, it really points forward to God's provision, not just in Abraham's life, but throughout this picture of the kingdom that we see developing. So all of these ideas in Abraham's life, they're not just incidental. They're building on this, this picture of God's provision in spite of what man can do or will do. So before we move on, any questions, any comments about Abraham and Isaac? Yeah. But, you know, the idea that he was a pagan and God chose him out of that hmm. and, you know, that he would believe and follow him. And, I mean, just in, you know, thinking personally and how yeah. it's all God's initiation. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. I have a question that's maybe a can of worms that you might reject. Great. Um, I've never been satisfied with the obvious doubt that Abraham shows through the whole process that seems obvious in the Genesis narrative and people's explanation for how they deal with Paul's treatment of that in Romans 4 mm-hmm. when he talked about his initial faith mm-hmm. being counted to him as righteousness he believed therefore and that's prior to circumcision and then he uses that specific phrase that he did not waver in his faith like even when he considers his own body mm. So, like, like, even, like, pointing out, like, specific details of things that he seemed to waver on in the narrative of Genesis. Yep. <laughs> yeah, so I think, I think what's important to recognize, and um, for the purposes of the way we're, we're going to look through this this morning, it's going to seem as sort of like I'm, I'm taking these, these individuals and I'm showing you a sort of picture of failure to sort of faithfulness. And I think that's largely the, the, the right way to categorize them. But the great thing and the really human thing about the picture that I think you have throughout these stories is it doesn't quite work like that. It's like f- faith, failure, faith, failure, faith, which, I mean, how, how true is that for so many of us? And I, I think, you know, to speak to your question of like the unwaveringness, uh, I, don't, I don't know the exact way that we, we parse that out, but I do know like there's a sense in which in my own life, I could say my faith in God doesn't, hasn't ever wavered on a deep, like, real level. But then at the same time, it has in some sense. So I think it's true that for us as, as believers, I, I would argue there's a sense in which you see in Genesis 15, to, to put it in theological terms, Abraham is, I would say, 
clearly converted at that point. Um, by the time we get to Genesis 22, I think Abraham's sanctification has really taken root. And we see some significant growth in Abraham's life to where that, that doubt that still seemed to plague him as a believer in God is, is kind of very, very not present in that story. And the story really is highlighting those realities. The other thing to say that is, again, I don't think Moses is trying to tell us a story of these people's lives that is, uh, that is meant to be taken sort of like we would imagine a, a typical narrative that's being told. A lot of what Moses is trying to do, I think, is thematic. He's trying to show us themes in, in these people's lives. And so I think you can look at Abraham's life as a whole and, and you can see by the time you get to this chapter that Abraham has an unwavering faith. And I think that's a fair estimation. But again, we can, hey, we can hash that more out. Yeah, can I add a little bit? sure. Yeah, so life isn't, God doesn't write out the script and show it to us. In Joshua 24, verse 2, it tells us that God brought him out of the land of the Chaldeans. Yeah. And he didn't say, you're going to run into this leader going to get real scared, but I'm going to take care of it. So he is living by faith. He mm -hmm. never doubted the promise. He just didn't sure. understand the, the, the delivery of that promise. And, and so the faith in the promise of God didn't waver. There was a kingdom whose foundation and builder was made with God. Yeah. That never wavered. Um, and life, he made real decisions at real time. You know, we, we all do it all the time. Sure. Like you just said. Yeah. We're not doubting our God. We're, we're in real time, and we make some, or excuse me, I make some really sinful, stupid decisions. <laughs> yeah. But I'm so thankful. And in saying Moses writing this, he's writing God's story. Sure. And all of a sudden, Abraham pops up in it. Yep. And we get to pop up in it if we're children of God. Yeah. And that's kind of exciting to me. For sure. And so, yeah, I, he didn't waver in the promise that God was going to have a promised seed. Yeah, I think there's a... There's a core in which that's absolutely true, though I don't think, I think we want to take Abraham's faults seriously, is I think the, the point that, that I want to make clear. And I think that Moses is really trying to highlight by the time we get to the, really the end of his story, that, that things have changed for Abraham, that his, his faith is sort of crystallized in this clear example. I, otherwise, I don't know really why God feels the need to put Abraham to the test, as, as the text says. So I think it's, a, it's meant to give us a clear picture that Abraham believes God undoubtedly. Isn't that sort of like, uh, you know, how God completes the work he began in us? Yeah. When you were doing this little thing here, that's sort of how, yeah. you know, think of our lives. Overall, we're getting there. Right. There's this thing, but gradually. Yep. Right? Well, wait till we get to Jacob. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I think, I think, yes. And that's what I really want you guys to see in these chapters is that you know, I talk about transformation. I think what's incredible isn't just that God is building the kingdom here. He's also sanctifying a people for himself. So that's, that's something that's very new in some sense in these chapters. God's not just preserving his purposes. He's actually changing these people. That's a slow and messy process, again, as we're about to see. So in Jacob's life, uh, again, uh, I think if Abraham's struggles with fear and doubt, they really just kind of seem small honestly, in comparison to the mess that is Jacob's life. Um, Jacob is a man who seems to be constantly getting it wrong. I mean, even sometimes when he gets it right, he's still getting it wrong. Jacob's story is full of deception and greed and recklessness. 
cowardice, enmity, pride, all of these things, they just fill the story out. It's a story in which God's promises and purposes are constantly seeming to be in jeopardy. You know, we have a couple instances in Abraham's life. Well, Jacob, you're just going, oh my word, how in the world is any of this going to work out? Not only does Jacob uh, deceive his father Isaac with his mother's help and steal the blessing of his brother Esau, but he, rather than face his father and brother after doing this, he what? He flees. He runs away, I think, out of cowardice. And this is a theme, really, throughout Jacob's life of running from conflict. Conflict after conflict that Jacob does not want to face. You know, we see this in first in, in, with Esau, and then we see him sort of in his desire to marry Rachel. What does that lead to? Well, it leads to a, like a cold war with Laban. Uh, this conflict that goes on for decades, you know, that's in some sense you have these two people that don't really want to own up to the fact that they clearly hate each other. And, and this constant conflict that results in this sort of strange story about a baby-making war in which, again, we have conflict happening between uh, Jacob's wives, you know, his two wives and his two concubines. All of this culminates in more deception as Jacob steals Laban's sheep and his wife steals the household idols and they run from, from Laban to try to get away. And so over and over again, this is a constant theme you see of conflict. I mean, Jacob is, I think, a, a foolish, stubborn mess of a man. Um, he is in no way, shape, or form someone who seems fit to inherit the promises. I mean, he stole them, for goodness sake. So Jacob does not seem like someone through whom the promises should come. And I think that's the point, right? Once again, in Jacob's life, we see clear picture that God's grace is intervening in spite of man to accomplish his purposes, right? And God, you see this in the fact that God, in a way that is very perplexing at times, is constantly blessing Jacob. Even though you're like, why? I don't understand. Jacob doesn't deserve any of this. This is, Jacob is, this is wrong. Why is God blessing Jacob? And this is just a constant, constant theme in Jacob's life. And I think God blesses Jacob in some truly phenomenal and even strange ways. So I think one of the ways that God constantly blesses Jacob, to be honest with you, is through conflict. Uh, you see this throughout Jacob's life that, as I said, conflict is this running theme. But it's also one of these key ways that God blesses him. I think you could say that conflict was this blessing that Jacob is trying to run from his entire life. And yet God's continually faithful to force Jacob to face these conflicts. And you see this in his life. In every instance, when God forces Jacob to have to face the conflicts that he's running from, God resolves the conflict. I mean, it's incredible. And, and he, you, you think, well, what, what, you know, he, why? Why should this happen? You know, the first time we see this is with Laban. After decades of this conflict, you know, he runs away from Laban. He steals all, he tricks him into, you know, making this agreement. And then he, right from out from underneath him, takes his best sheep. And like I said, his wife takes idols with him. And then Laban is not happy. And he chases Jacob down. And you read this story, uh, in, in, in it's like, okay, they're finally going to come to blows. Like this conflict that's been going on for years. Laban's had enough. Jacob's had enough. Laban's chased him down. We're going to see a fight. But that's not what happens. Laban shows up and he seems pretty frustrated. But as he's sort of pillaging through Jacob's stuff, trying to catch him, 
and see what he's done. He sort of offhandedly says to Jacob, well, God said to me in a dream last night that I can't touch you. So, hmm. The end result of this is that they make a treaty or a truce. Now, it's a, it's a sort of uneasy truce, but they make a truce nonetheless. And they agree to sort of go their separate ways. And, and Laban says, okay, fine, you can take my daughters. That's fine. You also see this, of course, with Esau. In Genesis 33, God once again forces Jacob to go back and face Esau head on after years of avoiding him. And yet, instead of receiving the wrath that he seems to deserve from Esau, we see what? Esau embraces him. He hugs him. He kisses him. His long-lost brothers returned. It's a beautiful picture, but one that Jacob certainly doesn't seem to deserve. And Jacob seems to start to be getting that reality by the time we come to that story. But I think most importantly, this is typified in Jacob's wrestling match with God in Genesis 32. You know, here I think we see Jacob finally being forced to face the one conflict that's plagued him his entire life, the fact that he's stolen the blessing. I think that's the really the reality of what's happening here. Jacob is confronted with God, the one person he probably doesn't want to be confronted with after what he's done. But you see that Jacob in this, in this match, with, this wrestling match with God, he, he's persistent and he's demanding that God bless him. And I think that shows that des- he's, he's desperate that God would show him grace and favor despite what he's done. And in this just surprising turn of events, Jacob's crippled and yet he still won't let go. And then God does what? He blesses him, despite the fact that I think at this point, there's no indication that God should do this, that that Jacob deserves this. This conflict that that Jacob has with God is resolved, not because Jacob deserves it, but because, because God is merciful to him and blesses him despite what he deserves. And this story of God's favor towards Jacob, it's kind of the bookend of these two stories, really, that go all the way back to Genesis 28. And both of them serve to frame Jacob's time in exile. And these stories really parallel each other and they teach us some important truths about what God is doing through Jacob and in his life. Because he's not just blessing him through these conflicts and providing him and confirming those covenant promises, but he's also showing Jacob the true, I think the true deeper nature of the kind of blessing that he intends to bring through Jacob's life. And you first see this, like I said, in chapter 28 where Jacob, after he's run away from home and he passes out on this rock, he, he gets this dream of this ladder or this, this stairway between heaven and earth. I think the point of this picture, this dream that God gives him, it serves really two purposes within the story. It's kind of an anti-babble. The reality is it's God sort of saying to Jacob, okay, man tried to make his way to me, but I am now going to be the one to do that. I'm going to make man have access to God. And I'm going to do it through you and through this kingdom. And I'm going to do it through my ways and my purposes, not through man. And so this picture, it's, it's an anti babel And he's going to make this great name that he promised Abraham through Jacob. And I think that's reiterating that. And, and Jacob fittingly names this place Bethel, or the house of God. Because I think in this picture, he's seeing that man is going to return to a place of being able to have access to God. You know, we saw this exile in Genesis 3, and I think this is sort of a picture that God is undoing that exile where Adam and his wife were removed from God's presence. God is going to restore that communion. And I think it's fitting that in the same way, the book into that story is that, that story of that wrestling match. 
And after Jacob's encounter with God, he names that place Peniel, which means the face of God, because Jacob says, I've seen the face of God and lived. And again, I think that story is highlighting on a deeper level that this kingdom that God is building, it's going to undo that terrible, terrible thought that if we faced God as sinners, we are going to die. I mean, think about what we saw last week in Isaiah, right? That was the picture that we saw of Isaiah face to face with God. Isaiah said, what? I'm dead. <laughs> I'm going to die. And yet Jacob says, I saw the face of God and I lived. And does Jacob deserve that more than Isaiah? I don't think so. I don't think it's because Jacob's more special or anything like that. I think it's because God is trying to communicate the kind of grace and mercy that his kingdom will establish. So we see this struggle throughout his life. I mean, you could summarize Jacob's life as a mess. You could summarize it as repeated struggle. Yet, I think you could also summarize it as a life of repeated blessing, even though he doesn't deserve it. And both of these realities really continue to highlight what Moses is making clear, and that's that God and not man is going to establish this kingdom, and he's going to do it on the basis of his own purposes, not our, our own righteousness or how much we deserve. So any thoughts? Any questions? I know we're running short on time, and we have one, one really great story to cover. So any thoughts or questions? I have a quick question. Yeah. Well, I think there's a major difference between sort of the legality of what happens in, in the story of Esau and Jacob and, and Isaac. I mean, I think it's clear that Isaac thinks this what's done has been done and I can't undo it. I think it's a whole other question to ask, will God honor this? And so, again, I think this is something that Jacob is basically running from his entire life, this sort of guilt and, and obvious... Obviously, it seems to be the case that I think him wanting the blessing in the, in the beginning was not a good thing. And yet, I think by the time you come to this point, things are changing once again. I think you see this as evidence in the fact that what does Jacob sort of immediately do as a result of this experience? He humbles himself and he says, okay, fine, I'll go back and I'll face Esau. And the tenor that you hear throughout that is, you know, Esau's like, who are these people? Well, these are the children that God graciously gave to me. What is all this stuff? It's the stuff that God graciously gave to me that I don't deserve. I mean, Jacob is, is clearly humbled by the end of this story. And, and again, you see this transformation happening. So I think in that specific instance, it's sort of Jacob's way of going, God, will you confirm what I've done? I know I don't deserve it, but please confirm it. And God does. It's, it's, it's surprising. Yeah. Bingo. Bingo. Yeah. Well, I, that's a great, great segue, brother, because that's really going to that's really going to take us into the next section, because man, I think the story of Joseph, it's incredible. It, it really brings the the major themes and conflicts of this book to a to a resolution. Um, you know, it's an incredible story that we find there. Uh, of course, it begins not with Joseph but with his brothers in some sense, we see 
Again, they're, the, they're their father's children, right? Their, their lives are full of violence and enmity and jealousy and deception and sexual immorality. You know, in, in Genesis 34 and 37, we see these pictures of just sacrilegious, I don't, sacrilegious violence is really the best way to describe what happens at Shechem. And then in chapter 37, of course, we see sort of shades of Cain, right? They, they hate that their, fa- that their brother is favored by their father, and this stokes this kind of jealousy in them, and they're debating whether or not they should kill him. Uh, we're also given, you know, these graphic accounts of sexual immorality with Reuben and Judah in Genesis 35 and 38. I mean, these guys aren't, aren't good. They're not great. And yet, all of this is, is showing us how bad things are getting, right? But at the same time, God's intervention is going to serve to show that not only is he preserving these promises that he's made to Jacob and his children. But I think one of the things that's amazing about this story is rather than just working despite what they do, God actually uses what they do to further his purpose. And so we see in Genesis 37 through 50, this incredible story of Joseph who stands really in contrast, not just to his brothers, but honestly, everybody in the book before this. I mean, Joseph is the outlier. Every character that we've encountered so far has looked like Adam post-Genesis 3, except for this one man. In Genesis 37, 9 through 11, we see Joseph is deeply loved by his father. He's, he's got incredible wisdom and insight. I mean, he's, he's a man who seems to be filled with righteousness and integrity, who is willing to obey God and honor God in all circumstances. And he's, he has this dream, right, of this prophecy that he's going to have this role as a future ruler and savior of his people. His brothers aren't pleased by it. And, you know, they're arguing about what to do. And eventually Judah convinces them not to kill him, but to sell him into slavery. And thereby, God's grace, Joseph is able to work his way up, even though he's been sold into slavery, into a high position. But of course, he's betrayed by Potiphar's wife and thrown into jail to rot. But again, by God's grace, after many years, Joseph is not only released, but he gets favor with the current Pharaoh who appoints him prime minister of Egypt. So what a turn of events that is. And Joseph is then put in charge of the food supplies for the nation, right? And when the famine hits, Joseph's wisdom and its, his foresight, which he credits to God, is, is able to be the saving grace, not just for Egypt, but for many nations surrounding him and, and including his brothers and his father. And there's so many things we could look at at this story, but I want us to just look at, at really the, the resolution of it. So if you'll turn to chapter 45, verses 4 and 5. Joseph says to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me here before you to preserve life. It's uh, honestly an amazing and beautiful picture of God's grace and kindness that we've seen repeatedly throughout this book. And it's just sort of exemplified in the story of Joseph. On the one hand, Joseph's story is significant because God uses Joseph in a very clear, material way to preserve Israel and to preserve the, the tribes here. But I think on a deeper level, this story is significant because, like I said, all those themes that, that we've been seeing throughout this book of conflict, 
conflict between brothers, going all the way back to Cain and Abel, of violence, of refusal to build the kingdom. All these things are finding their anti-type in Joseph. Joseph is, is a picture for us of what God is doing and how God intends to do it and the kind of man that God is going to use to do that. Joseph's story is significant because it, it points forward ultimately to Christ, right? Turn to Genesis 50, 15 through 21. Now Joseph's uh, brothers come to him after Jacob dies and they're afraid, okay, Joseph's going to get us now. The only thing that was holding him back was, was Jacob. And now that he's dead, we're in trouble. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of your father, God your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. I mean, it's a wonderful contrast to everything that we've seen through this book so far. Joseph is showing us the anti-type for Adam that we saw. I mean, Joseph is doing really what Adam should have done, right? Adam exalted himself to the place of God. And in response to his brothers, Joseph says, am I in the place of God? Absolutely not. And, and the picture that we have here, it's this beautiful way to end this book because it shows us the kind of kingdom and the kind of king that God is going to raise up. Joseph is the rejected and despised king who redeems and forgives his brothers, who is exalted in wisdom and righteousness by the power of God. He saves and forgives them. He is one of the clearest pictures I think we're going to get, not just in this book, but entire uh, Old Testament of, of Jesus Christ, this coming Savior. In fact, he's such a shining example, we might be tempted to go, well, this is it. Like, this is the guy, right? Except there's this surprising thing that happens to Judah where we see once again transformation in his life. He goes from the brother who's suggesting to sell the beloved brother into slavery to becoming the brother who's willing himself to be sold into slavery to protect Benjamin, his father's beloved son. And along with this, we read in chapter 49, 8 through 12, of this, this blessing that that. Jacob gives to Judah, where he promises that through his line, the promised seed will come in the form of a coming kingship and a coming king who will command the obedience of the nations and bring abundant blessings. So I think the, the idea that we're supposed to be left with is, wow, Joseph's not it. So someone even greater is coming? Someone even better than Joseph? I mean, who could this possibly be? How could someone be coming who's even more righteous than Joseph, who could do even more to redeem his people than Joseph has done. And that's the, that's the feeling that we're supposed to be left with, that there's, there's one who's coming who's going to do even greater things than what Joseph has done. And how is that? What will this king do? Well, I think we get hints of that as we close out this book in, in sort of two stories in 49, 29 through 33, 
and 50, 24 through 26. These stories really mirror each other. You know, for all the hope that we've seen in these few chapters of Joseph and everything that he's doing, there's these, these two stories that remind us that despite all that Joseph has done, one thing still remains, and that's death. We read those dreadful words, and Jacob died, and Joseph died. And yet I think there's something actually really beautiful in both of these pictures. Because we read of these requests that both men make. They're kind of odd at first. Jacob says to his sons, When I die, take me back to Canaan and bury me with Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Rebekah, and Leah. And we're told that as he died, he was gathered with his people. Similarly, as we come to the end of Jacob's, or Joseph's life, at the very end of the book of Genesis, we're left with these words of Joseph. They're his dying words. When God comes to your aid, you are to carry my bones up from here. I think these two stories really paint this picture of the hope that both of these men had and what the kingdom that was coming would be like. It's a hope, ultimately, of resurrection. Because why else would they care where their bones end up unless they believe resurrection's coming in that kingdom that God's building. Why did Jacob want to be there? Why did he want to be gathered with his people? Why are we told that he was gathered with his people? Because they trusted God's promises. As the author of Hebrews says to us in Hebrews 11:22, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith? What does he mean? What, what, what faith is Joseph exercising? Well, you could say faith in the Exodus, but if you look at the context of Hebrews 11, it's clear what the author of Hebrews means. Joseph believes God's promises, and he believes that God is not only going to build his kingdom, but through that kingdom will come redemption and resurrection. Through that kingdom will come the undoing of Genesis 3. A new and better Joseph will come who will taste death for his brothers and raise them not just from famine, but to new life through resurrection of the dead. And it's going to happen through this lion of the tribe of Judah that we see promised, through the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, the one who defeated sin and death on the cross. I hope you guys see that this is a really hopeful book. This is a really encouraging book. For all the the horrible and negative things here, I think the picture is really clear. God's going to do it. God's going to provide. And nothing's going to thwart him. I mean, repeatedly through these chapters, I don't know how to describe it other than to say God is constantly stacking the deck against himself. It's like God's trying to show off and say, okay, watch this. I'll pick a barren man and an old, or an old man and a barren woman. All right, I'll pick Jacob. Okay, now we'll use Jacob's sons. Repeatedly, God is showing, I am going to do what I only can do. And he does it time and again. I think you could really sum up the story of Genesis in, in one verse, and that's the one we looked at there in 5020. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. We can get hung up in, in the theology behind that verse, but the reality is, I mean, what a perfect description of the events of Genesis, right? Time and again, what we meant for evil, God used for good, for his purposes. 
And that's, that's the thing that I want us to, to go away with because I think as we go into Exodus, that's a through line that needs to carry us through the events that we're going to see. Once again, over and over again, we're going to see that God will be true to His promises and His purposes despite what man can do. God is at work. He cannot be stopped. We have to remember that. It's going to get hard at times. But God will see us through. God's purposes and promises will prevail. He will provide. He will bless. And He will deliver His people. Not because we deserve it, but because that's the kind of God He is. Any thoughts, any, thoughts, any questions before we, we close out? Amen. 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 It's just, it's amazing. I mean, everything about that, that's that, I mean, the fact that he's, I'll take care of you and your little ones. He speaks kindly to them. I mean, what a beautiful picture of the tenderness and the mercy of Christ that we have there. Any other thoughts? Any other questions? All right. Again, I will challenge you. There's a lot I didn't talk about. Okay. So there's a lot of really good stories in there, and uh, I had to pick and choose which ones that we talked about, and I tried to focus on the ones that I think really highlighted. But go back and read through some of these stories. I promise you, there's, in some form or fashion, you'll see how these stories all point to what I'm saying. And there's going to be some questions that you should ask, but that's good. You want to ask those questions because usually by asking those questions, you'll actually come to see, oh, yeah, okay, the answer to this question is exactly what I thought it should be, and that is that God is doing this. So take a look at that, and then get ready, because we're hopping into Exodus, and this is, uh, this is really where things start hopping along. So, all right, let me, let me pray with us, and we'll, uh, we'll head upstairs. God, we are just humbled in thankfulness for your mercy and your tenderness towards us, uh, that Christ has, though he was rejected by us and scorned by us and mocked by us, that, uh, God, he did not see fit to do anything other than be merciful and kind and save us and forgive us, and that he is, God, gentle and lowly with us. We praise you for that, and we praise you for the picture that we have here in Genesis of your mercy, your grace, and ultimately, God, of your willingness and your determination to build your kingdom. God, if it were on us, we confess we would not, we could not do it. And yet, you have sent your Son, whose kingdom is not of this world, who has been given all authority in heaven and earth. And we are grateful for him. And we look forward to that day when he will bring that new heavens and that new earth. We ask these things in his name. Amen.